Mouse to Mouse, Episode 10, Get Your Kicks. This was a day that I had been eagerly awaiting. In a way, I saw it as the real beginning of our road trip. Now, I know this rather overlooks the fact that we'd driven the best part of 300 miles to get to Las Vegas. This will, I promise, be the last of my spiritual new beginnings. And I'm not entirely sure how Sarah would feel about my logic here. But as so much of the actual open road part of that journey had been in pitch darkness, we hadn't really experienced the true wonder of an ever-changing America passing by our window. Today was the day that all that was set to change, and just for good measure, a sizable proportion of the road that was about to open up before us was going to carry the impossibly romantic designation of Route 66. Before all of this could be achieved, though, we had to actually leave Vegas, which isn't quite as simple a proposition as you might imagine. Firstly, we had to wait for our car to be retrieved by the valet, which is an entirely unfamiliar experience for someone from the UK, where generally, if someone else drives away in your car, your next action is to report it's stolen. Once we did eventually retrieve our chariot and negotiate the equally alien situation of judging exactly how and how much to tip the car hop, we were then ushered towards the general carnage of Las Vegas Boulevard, whilst desperately fumbling with the sat-nav in order to learn in which direction to turn once we reached it. The inevitable result of this was, as it so often is, that our first turn was actually down entirely the wrong side road, causing our little robotic transit manager to redirect and suggest a completely inappropriate U-turn in the middle of a busy street. While Sarah was dealing with this minor piece of strategic recalibration, my mind had completely wandered off. I had, you see, glimpsed out of the passenger side window a shop that bore the rather remarkable legend, Zombie Apocalypse Store. Clearly, this wasn't the time to stop and browse its shelves, not least because I think such a course of action would probably have tipped our rather nervous daughter over the edge. But nonetheless, the existence of such an establishment, where, according to its website, customers can shoot real zombies here down a perfectly unremarkable side street underlines how completely bonkers this town is. After successfully negotiating a warren of back roads that by turns looked less and less glittery than the strip and more like a slightly run-down urban conurbation, we found our way back onto the desired route and before long the postmodern excess of Las Vegas had been replaced by a stunning natural landscape of soaring mountains and swooping valleys that looked like it had more in common with the surface of Mars than the madhouse we had just departed. Once over the Hoover Dam bypass bridge, which I had been greatly looking forward to seeing, but was actually a bit disappointed with, because it felt like, and this will come as a huge shock here, driving across a bridge. I don't quite know what I had been expecting, but the barriers on either side of the road, which were presumably there as some sort of bulwark against high crosswinds, meant that the striking vista suddenly revealing the majesty of the Colorado River never really materialised. At one point, shortly after we crossed over into Arizona though, I was shocked to glance out of my window and see the Lone Ranger cresting a hill on silver, waving his gleaming white hat in the air while sharing a brotherly multicultural moment with Tonto. Okay, this didn't actually happen, but it really wouldn't have surprised me if it had, because the land into which we were now driving instantly recalled every western and a good deal of the road movies that I'd ever seen. 
At that moment, with the kids happily chatting in the back, a soundtrack of classic Americana playing through the car's sound system, and Sarah and I taking in the remarkable sights that couldn't have been more iconic, or for that matter, more different from those we had left at home, I couldn't help feeling that this really wasn't a bad way to be spending our summer. After a while on the other side of the road, I noticed a rather ramshackle old gas station that, like so many similar roadside businesses, had diversified to offer additional services. Unlike this sort of business in Britain, though, that might sell fresh eggs or provide a small cafe for its patrons, the hand-painted sign on this little establishment offered the opportunity to shoot machine guns. While obviously it was a tempting proposition for a family of four, we decided to resist the urge and opted instead to simply marvel at how unremarkable this most aggressive of experiences must be regarded in these parts if it's so casually available alongside a gallon of unleaded and a pint of milk. Another thing that caught my eye and piqued my curiosity whilst driving through this particular section of Arizona desert was the number of remotely situated houses that had large boats outside them. After some thought, I concluded that there was perhaps some kind of spiritual movement dwelling in, and possibly affected by, this particular landscape who saw themselves as latter-day Arizona knowers, and who had been given a divine tip-off about an impending deluge that would at any moment convert the surrounding dust bowl into a Wild West version of the Everglades. Either that, or they just like driving a really, really long way to go boating, but frankly, I prefer my explanation. Our first stop on the way to our final destination of Flagstaff was the town of Kingman, but before we reached it, actually about 14 miles before, we drove past the dilapidated old shack of a place that carried a sign excitedly exclaiming that this is Santa's land, complete with a portrait of the jaunty old chap himself with his trademark white beard and scarlet headgear. Though we didn't realise it at the time, we were actually passing through the abandoned ghost town of Santa Claus, Arizona. Santa Claus was formed in 1937 by a larger-than-life lady, she was apparently 300 pounds in weight, called Nina Talbot, who, like us, had travelled this way from Los Angeles, with her husband claiming, according to the excellent Atlas Obscura travel blog, to be the biggest real estate agent in California. Get it? Quite why Talbot decided that the middle of the Mojave Desert was just the place for a Father Christmas-themed attraction is anybody's guess. But perhaps rather surprisingly, it achieved some success as a tourist destination, but never lived up to Nina's hopes of convincing people of upping sticks and moving to the desert was a wise and presumably festive lifestyle choice. The Talbots sold their interest in Santa Claus, I never thought I'd write that particular sentence, in 1949, but the town continued as a holiday-themed desert-bound and steadily declining Arizonan rival to Disneyland for the next 46 years until the last business finally closed its doors in 1995. Now, all that remains is the crumbling old building and the sign that caught my eye. But I must confess that this was exactly the kind of place that I'd always hoped we might see. And the whole ill-conceived get-rich-quick scheme was the sort of manifestation of the American dream that those old 50s live-action Disney movies had me believing in. A single statue of a bright white sheep on the hillside marked our entrance into Kingman, and a first real glimpse of signs that proclaimed the most iconic road number in the world ensured that this particular small town would live long in my memory. Driving into Kingman felt very much like seeing a real-world manifestation of the road that we had sorted down a few days ago at Carsland in Anaheim. 
It's not so much that it looked like radiator springs, although there were certain physical resemblances, but more that you could feel a kind of unifying aura being cast by the mother road. The fact that we stopped ostensibly to visit the first of a plethora of Route 66 museums that exist all the way along the road didn't hurt in that respect. Before we managed to make it to the museum, though, we stumbled across a memorial to a man by the name of Edward Fitzgerald Beale, a US Navy lieutenant who, between 1850 and 1880, at the behest of President James Buchanan, set out to survey and build a thousand-mile wagon road from Mexico to the Colorado River that divided Arizona and California. The route of this road was ultimately followed by, you guessed it, US Highway 66, along with the Santa Fe Railroad. But while this obviously fits in nicely with our current narrative, it is not the most interesting characteristic of Beale's project. That distinction would have to go to the fact that rather than simply using horses or even mules as pack animals for his expedition, Beale augmented them with the first and to date only Camel Corps to trek across the continental United States. The idea to use camels because of their ability to travel much greater distances without sustenance than any other comparable animal was actually that of Secretary of War and later President of the Confederate States Jefferson Davis, but was ultimately abandoned as a practice because, ironically, they gave the mules and horses the hump. The Route 66 Museum was a small but enjoyable exhibit showcasing the history of the road and its importance to the town of Kingman, as well as paying homage to its famous son, the habitual comic cowboy sidekick Andy Devine. Andy also provided his distinctive vocal stylings to the character of Friar Tuck in Disney's Robin Hood in 1973, a tale that of course emanated from my side of the pond, and incidentally the first Disney animated classic released in my lifetime. So I obviously felt an instant kinship with him and his town. We all enjoyed the museum and then spent a further time in the glorious Arizona sun exploring the static steam locomotive, by which I mean climbing into it and pretending to be an engine driver, in the pleasant little park opposite. Before too long though, it was time to hit the road again and move on to a place I was looking forward to seeing, the quirky old town of Seligman, Arizona, about 90 miles and two hours away. This particular stretch of Route 66 is punctuated by what I have since discovered are reproductions of a series of signs that formed a famous advertising campaign for Burma Shave that first appeared beside Highway 65 in Lakeville, Minnesota in 1926 and then spread out across the nation. The campaign usually consisted of a set of small roadside signs that gradually revealed the humorous promotional message and on the last sign bore the company's name. Apparently, as speeds on the roads across America increased with the interstate system in the late 1950s, the company's new owners, Philip Morris, were advised by legal counsel to discontinue the tradition, presumably for the fear of distracted drivers careering off the road and hitting them in the pocket with ensuing lawsuits. The series that we saw, two miles from Seligman, seemed to play with such a theme, stating, Don't lose your head. To save a minute. You need your head. Your brains are in it. Burma shave. Mind you, as much as I enjoyed this distraction, by this point the signs were not the most likely thing to have driven us off the road. As beautiful as the weather had been in Kingman, just as we were about to hit Seligman, we got a lesson in just how quickly things can change. Just as we passed the sign that heralded our entrance to the town, almost out of nowhere we were in the middle of a dust storm that meant that you could not see anything more than about six feet in front of the car. In addition to the complete drop-off in visibility, we were being buffeted by what to us felt like some serious crosswinds that made it difficult for Sarah to keep us travelling in a straight line. 
Now, we've both seen Twister, and while Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt weren't quite spinning around with a levitating cow in front of us, the road ahead, what we could see of it, looked for all the world like the kind of harbinger of doom that features in every disaster movie you've ever seen. With this in mind, our experience of Seligman and the famous Delgadillo snowcap was more drive-by than drive-in, as we decided to press on directly to Flagstaff and our lodgings for the night. By this time, the clear blue skies of earlier in the day had now completely given way to furious-looking dark clouds, and the sun had been replaced by torrential rain. The temperature, which had held steady around the 100 mark for most of the day, had plummeted to the low 60s, and suddenly I was beginning to wonder if that zombie apocalypse store back in Vegas might not have been a premonition of impending catastrophe after all. It turns out, though, that this kind of thing is perfectly normal in these parts, and that the sense of disaster that had overtaken the front of our car, it should be noted that the kids in the back were completely oblivious to the whole thing, engrossed in another episode of Scooby-Doo as they were, had more to do with the fact that as Brits we were rather more used to a diet of constant drizzle than the instantaneous fire and brimstone that constitutes weather in Arizona. As suddenly as the storm began, it was gone. And by the time we drove into Flagstaff, we were once again being smiled upon by a balmy August evening. We were, by this point, all pretty hungry, so a stroll around the rather charming-looking downtown area found us gravitating towards any window that seemed to have a menu in it. Perhaps slightly oddly, given the fact that it was quite evidently early evening, we settled on a visit to a restaurant called Martin's Breakfast Place, which, despite its morning-based moniker, was now serving dinner. The restaurant really more what I would call a cafe, served a selection of what I believe were New Mexican dishes, which seemed to be an appropriate nod of the hat for the next day on our route, in a pleasantly bohemian setting that I would describe as Day of the Dead meets My Little Pony. The food was good and the service friendly, and all of us left refreshed, if still a little jaded, from a long day on the road. Luckily, the drive to our hotel, charmingly titled Little America, and beautifully situated in an honest-to-goodness pine forest, was a short one. And before too long, the kids were in bed and we were able to relax with a bag of M&Ms and a plan for our journey to Albuquerque. 